Welcome to Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of the Forensic Psychiatry Program at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and the McMaster University Division of Forensic Psychiatry, in collaboration with the Multimedia and Entertainment Department at Mohawk College. Today the topic will be about forensic psychiatry and some general information regarding forensics and the role of a forensic psychiatrist. Our host today is Brandon Sundstrom, Knowledge Translation Specialist. Our very first guest of the Hitting the Hammer podcast is Dr. Gary Chamowitz, professor in the Department of Psychiatry at McMaster University and the head of forensic psychiatry program at St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton. Gary, thanks so much for coming. Uh, welcome to the Hating the Hammer podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. We just wanted to start with uh, something general. Uh, what is forensic psychiatry? So, so forensic psychiatry, obviously, that's the work I do um, and the place I, I work in. It's it's that intersection between mental health and the law. So basically where um, mental illnesses, mental um, disorders intersect with the criminal justice system. Can you give an example of how that how they intersect? Right. So, so, so you probably, I mean, all you have to do is open the newspaper or watch TV and you'll, you'll see some of these things pop up fairly regularly. The two common areas that people get sort of uh, focused on when it comes to forensic psychiatry are criminal responsibility and fitness to stand trial. And I say that because um, when people commit offenses and their mental disorder drives the offense, um, obviously it gets the attention of the, the public. But what happens is that people then have an opportunity to plead not criminally responsible for the offense. So in other words, if, if the mental disorder was the primary driver for the offense, not something that they chose when well, they may have a defense of not criminally responsible. Um, in the States, that's called not guilty by reason of insanity. And as you can get a sense of, that's kind of the space that we operate in and get to the front of the line with the public. There's one other area, which is uh, fitness to stand trial. So people who are being tried um, obviously need to be there, both physically and also mentally. So if they're unwell when they're having their court trial, they may be found unfit to stand trial and then got to wait until such time as they're fit to stand trial. Okay, so um, as a forensic psychiatrist, what is your role in the in the whole scheme of things? But so... so, so um, as you, as you said, I'm a forensic psychiatrist. There are probably around about 200 of us in the in the in the country. So it's a it's a, forensic psychiatry is a subspecialty of psychiatry. So we're all f- we're, f- we're physicians, we're psychiatrists, and we're specialized in forensic psychiatry. So I work at at St. Joseph Hospital, McMaster University, and what I do is I do some of those assessments for criminal responsibility and fitness to stand trial. I'll also do risk assessments. And if people get found not criminally responsible or unfit to stand trial, they fall into something called the review board system, and I will look after and treat and manage people who have been found uh, NCR that's not criminally responsible or unfit to stand trial. Okay, so uh, let's let's start with uh, not being not criminally responsible. Um, how do you determine if someone is not criminally responsible? So first of all, um, those people get sent to the forensic program to forensic psychiatrists. So in other words, a judge or a lawyer, could be a crown attorney or defense lawyer, may ask the forensic system, so in this case the hospital or the psychiatrist, to do an assessment. So we'll get an order to do an assessment. Our job is then to meet with the person, take a history, understand if they have a mental disorder. We look at lots and lots of collateral information. So in other words, the decision about our opinion doesn't come just from an interview, a single interview. 
It comes from observing the person usually over a period of time. Because the vast majority of people are in hospital for 30 to 60 days, looked after by a full multidisciplinary team. So they're observed 24-7 on the unit, interviewed by a number of different people. And on top of that, we look at, as I say, all this collateral information. We'll look at videos of what happened when people committed the offense, speak to family members, we'll look at hospital records, police records, take that all into consideration. And then there's law about this. It's called Section 16 of the Criminal Code. And then we'll present our opinion about whether that person meets the criteria about Section 16 of the Criminal Code. And we'll take that then off to court, both in terms of a, a written document and we may be asked to testify. Interestingly enough, we don't make the decision about NCR the judge does or the jury does. So it's the court makes the decision. We just provide an opinion. Okay, so if someone has a mental illness and they commit a crime, are they necessarily NCR immediately if they have a pre-diagnosed? Right, so so in Canada, and I must say that, and I say in Canada because the law is similar in many countries, but it's not the same. In fact, there are some countries, if you have a mental disorder and you commit a crime, you might be found the equivalent of NCR. In Canada, that's not the case. Lots of people have mental disorders of varying stripes. In fact, some people argue that 20% of the population at any point in time was suffering from some form of mental disorder. So just having a mental disorder doesn't obviate you for, at least excuse you in any way from criminal acts. You're still a person, you still make choices. The thing is, if your mental disorder at the time that you did what you did drove your actions, that's when you may be found NCR. People with mental disorders do good things, and they also may do bad things. They may steal, they may fight. The fact that you have a mental disorder doesn't get you off the hook. It's only if that mental disorder was responsible for your actions and not you as, as a well person. And, the, and the, that thing gets teased apart in the courts. I understand. So someone with a, a serious mental illness could be, um, could be stable clinically, um, commit a crime and still be found responsible. Right, right, exa exactly. So, I mean, just because you've got a mental illness, as do one in five of us, doesn't change anything in terms of your behavior. It's only if that disorder was active. Now, of course, there are only a few disorders um, which can change your thinking uh, to that point. But so just having a mental disorder, it's gotta be one that changes your thinking, drives your behaviors, and then you may, you may be found not criminally responsible. Is there, um, is there illnesses that are specific to forensic patients? That is there a high rate of, of any certain kind of illness with our population? Right. So when it comes to NCR, and not criminally responsible, um, the, the, there are a couple of diagnoses that, that we see more of. So as you can imagine, the sorts of things that change the way you think and then your behaviors are the things that, I guess, make you lose touch with reality. So these are illnesses, psychotic illnesses, so such as schizophrenia, and there's a and bipolar disorder to a lesser degree, and then there's a condition that sits between the two, schizoaffective disorder. So it's any disorder that can change your, your connection with reality. So these, as I say, are the psychotic disorders where you hear voices, believe things that are not true, and those are the things that can drive your behavior and you lose touch with reality. So they tend to be the vast majority of the people who get found in CR. You are listening to the first episode of the Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton in collaboration with Mohawk College. Let's move on to um, 
uh, fitness to stand trial. How do you how do you determine if someone is fit to stand trial? Right. So so as I mentioned, just in, in our law and I and I hopefully in an open and, and, and thoughtful society. Um, if you get charged with something, there's an expectation that you're in court to face your accuser. Long-standing principle, you shouldn't be tried in absentia. Um, sort of advanced societies have you there. Um, if you're unwell at the time and you're not thinking clearly, it really would be unfair to put you in front of a court because you won't be in a position to conduct a defense because you won't be thinking clearly. What we have to do is we have to see the person close to the court date hopefully on the court date, and see if their thinking is clear. So you need to know some very basic things for fitness to stand trial. This is like, for instance, you have to know what you're charged with. You have to know what could happen if you pled guilty or not guilty. You have to know what would happen if you get found guilty or not guilty. Because you imagine if you didn't know those things, you could be at a massive disadvantage and obviously couldn't conduct a defense. You have to know that the judge is going to be impartial your lawyer is there to help you, and the crown attorney is not going to help you necessarily, right? So, so that's to make sure you don't talk to the you talk to the right people, right? And that, and you know where where the court's going to go. Also, if you talk in court and you take an oath to tell the truth, you really need to know what that means. So, in other words, we don't want people who are unwell don't recognize that. Speaking, of course, court could take them to different places. You need to know what perjury is. So you need to know what perjury is. So, so. Now, the interesting thing is that if you were to ask somebody in the community, they may not know these things. So it's not about whether you know it. It's whether you would understand it if it was told to you. right? So I think if you asked most people, you know what perjury is, some people would know, some wouldn't. But most people would know that if you promise to tell the truth in a courtroom in front of a judge and they caught you out, they find out you were lying, you could be charged with something. It's called perjury. But if you get that construct, then at least we know that. So we try and assess people just before their court case. And that's interesting because we spoke about NCR before. NCR is to deal with your state of mind when you committed the act, not today. Mm-hmm. So the NCR, we have to look back, and it could be a year before if it's a serious offense, understand what was going on in your mind at that time. For fitness to stand trial, it's here and now when you're in the courtroom. Right. Okay. Um, what other what other kinds of services do forensic psychiatrists do? Right. So as I said, we do the, some of the front end assessments. Yep. Now, of course, if somebody's responsible, we never see them again. They go back to court and they deal with their, their right. court matter. If they're fit to stand trial, they go back to court. So we look after people who are unfit to stand trial and not criminally responsible, and we do a couple of things there. It's it's kind of an an interesting and, and a very um, I'd say it's a very positive thing about our Canadian society. Not only do we treat people with mental illnesses, but our job is to rehabilitate them. And we rehabilitate them at the same time as we have to protect the public. So we protect the public from people who might be committing offenses, namely some of these patients, perhaps when they're unwell. But we also try and get them well enough that they be able to regain their position in society. Now, if anybody is concerned about that, you need to know that at the end of any sentence, people are out there and we're better off as a society having people that um, have recovered from the illness have been rehabilitated, and that may mean taking medications for their illness, being in stable housing, finding meaningful employment, being in solid relationships, all to assure that they are well. We've treated them with dignity and respect, but society is also protected. So we do that, 
And I'd say that's a big, big part of the work that we do at St. Joe's and the forensic system in, in Canada. But there are more things that we do because we have this, um, I guess, one of the skills we've done, of course, is assessments for third parties. So we're able to hopefully look at and determine causes of behavior. We're able to predict or assess, predict, and manage and mitigate risk. So we also do risk assessments for other people who might be considered risky, people who may be threatening people, people who might... um, you know, threaten schools or uh, threaten other people or commit dangerous offenses in the courts so people want to know what the risk is. So we do that. We have a sexual behaviors clinic to assist people who have paraphilias, sexual disorders. We have an aggression clinic. And we do all sorts of assessments for, for the on the civil side of the house. Great. Um, if you get NCR, if an individual is found not criminally responsible, is that a free pass? So, so it's not a free pass. And I, and, I, and I know some people think it is a free pass and feel that they've avoided punishment. But our society is determined if, if what you did was not a function of your free will, it was a function of your illness, there's an obligation to treat you, but also to manage your risk to the community. There are many people in the forensic system who've been charged with offenses and they could range from anything from breach of probation to up to, to murder, who are in the system for much longer than they would have been if they'd been to, to, to a prison or jail. So they're in the system up until the time is that they're no longer a risk, a risk to the public. Okay. Um, how would you improve our healthcare system and reduce crime in, in Ontario and Canada? So I, I, what I'd say is probably something that's been said for hundreds of years. Um, generally agreed to nothing has been done about it, unfortunately. Um, I I think what we need to do is make sure in as as much as we can reduce crime, because there's always going to be some degree of criminal activity and violent behavior. When it comes to mental illness, and that's an area that obviously I'm more familiar with and I'm closer to, if we can make sure that we have enough preventive medicine, if we can make sure that people, as they become unwell, get treatment, if we can make sure that that treatment will stick with them, notwithstanding some of the behaviors that they may exhibit, if we can make sure there's treatment for substance use, which is also correlated with violence, and this is all accessible to people here and now, we will be able to reduce the number of people whose mental illnesses gets out of control and leads to violent or criminal behavior. Now, the problem is um, we're not doing that, and we're not doing that enough. Access to care is a massive issue in our in our country, in our province, and, and I would say around the world. So we need to prov- provide access to care well before anybody commits an offense. That requires political will, and it requires a society to recognize that this is an important thing to do. What's the percentage of people who have, or around approximately, what's the percentage of people who have a mental illness and, and commit a crime? Is, is it high? Is it low? So, so there, there is a correlation between mental illness and violence. I mean, we, we know that certain mental illnesses, when people are unwell, they're at a higher rate of committing violent offenses. So I think that's well established. The important thing to recognize is that much most of the violence that gets committed does not get committed by people with mental illnesses. Men, people with mental illnesses are not responsible for crime. What drives crime, criminal behavior, criminal mindsets, personality disorders, psychopathy, and substance use. 
So if we can manage, if you want to reduce crime, make sure people are well-educated, meaningfully housed, don't use drugs and alcohol, have decent relationships, you're going to reduce crime. So it's drugs and criminal behavior, pure and simple, drives crime, and only a small amount of crime is, is, is attributable to mental illness. Uh, so what percentage of people who commit crimes would fit into not criminally responsible around? Is it a high number? Is it low? It, it's, it's, a, it's a really low number. I mean, I, I think, you know, we're talking about a percentage maybe. Um, vast majority of people do not plead not criminally responsible. The reason for that is what I mentioned earlier is if you go to jail, you have a sentence which you will serve, you'll pay your debt to society, and if you behave yourself and don't take it difficult, you'll get out early. There's probation, there's, I said there's parole, you get paroled early. If you get found not criminally responsible, there's no guarantee you will ever get out. Wow. So if you still continue to be problematic in terms of your behaviors, use drugs, risky behavior, th there is no end point. So you could be sentenced for one, two, three years for your crime, but you could be spending 20, 30 years in the system if you found NCR. So there's no real incentive to do it, I mean, to plead NCR. Now, if you're facing much more serious crimes, where you might be facing 25 years in jail, you might want to roll the dice and go NCR if you can, right. because you might be out sooner. But, you know, it's not just a matter of you choosing. You have to meet criteria. The physicians have to be, I think you meet the criteria, the psychologists do. And then you have to co convince a court. And, and that's not just an easy thing because courts do not make these decisions lightly and they're very strict criteria. Tell me about gratification of being a forensic psychiatrist. So I, I, I love what I do. I, I enjoy going to work. I think it's a fascinating space, um, this interplay between law and mental health. I enjoy the people I work with. Many of the people who have committed serious offenses are nice people, have parts of them that are really nice. People may have five minutes, five hours, five days of their lives where they've done horrendous things. There's gratification in helping people recover, and there's gratification in making this place, a, this world a safer place because um, the recovery of people who have violent potential um, does improve society. I work with a great group of people. I think the people in this space um, are an unsung collection of heroes from our ward clerks to our nurses to the psychiatrists to everybody else in our program. Um, I think we as a society should be grateful that there are people that put themselves in this space and work with this patient population. And as I say, I find personal gratification working with such a great group of people doing what I think is valuable, if, if not um, unsung work. You definitely have to um, have a special level of compassion and empathy to be in forensics. Well, um, I'd like to think that. Um, as you as you know, um, what we have to guard against uh, once you give anybody uh, a power differential is the potential for any of our sadistic impulses to come out. But I mean, I think we pride ourselves on um, encouraging compassion uh, in places where you might not find it. Uh, because at the end of the day, if people are going to be released into society, if you treat them with dignity and respect, and your system in recovery, everybody wins. Thank you so much for being here today, Gary. I really appreciate your input. Thanks, Brandon. Pleasure being here.
You've just listened to Hitting the Hammer podcast, a production of St. Joseph's Healthcare Hamilton and the Forensic Psychiatry Division of McMaster University in collaboration with Mohawk College. The co-editors are Sebastian Pratt and Gary Shamifitz. The production manager is Brandon Sundstrom. The production editing team is Corey Davies and Tom McKay from the Mohawk College Multimedia and Entertainment Department. You can also visit the website of our journal's partner, the International Journal of Risk and Recovery at www.mullpress.mcmaster.ca slash IJRR. Journal published in collaboration with McMaster University Library Press. I'm Corey Davies. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time on Hitting the Hammer.